This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a Black Left perspective. I'm Glenn Ford, along with my co-host, Nellie Bailey. Coming up, the Hispanic community has long been targeted by racists in the United States. But that doesn't mean that anti-Black racism isn't a problem among Hispanics. A new article highlights the internationalist thinking of women in the Black Panther Party. And the coup in Bolivia. The fingerprints of the United States are all over it. But first, supporters of the nation's best-known political prisoner are gearing up for an important event December 7th in Philadelphia. Suzanne Ross of International Concern Family and Friends of Maria Abu-Jamal explains. A lot of significance is happening that wasn't happening up until 2016. And just to present the context, what changed everything, Mumia had been on death row, as people know, and was removed back about 2011, and at that time was sentenced to life in prison without parole, meaning having no chance of ever getting out. So not the most optimistic picture. But in 2016, something rather amazing happened. A case brought by somebody in Philadelphia. It's called Williams versus Pennsylvania. And this is somebody who was subjected to what we considered constitutionally incorrect. And he filed it, brought the case all the way up to the Supreme Court and won. And the issue was, to make it simple English, was essentially the conflict of interest involved in somebody who had been the DA in his case back when he was in state court, back when he was in the original trial stage and was convicted and Somebody who was in the DA's office named Ronald Castile was involved in the case then. Lo and behold, Ronald Castile becomes a Supreme Court justice in the state and gets to review Williams' case and likewise Mumia's same situation. So when Williams got the right to appeal this, Mumia's lawyers immediately filed and he, lo and behold, also had this opportunity. And the DA, the progressive, because progressive DA, and he is progressive in certain ways. I give him credit for making it possible for the MOVE folks to get out, which they hadn't gotten out in over 40 years, and most of them are out now. And that but, DA's name is Larry Krasner. And he's been hailed by many, especially in the liberal media, as breath of fresh air and blah, 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 blah. But the fact is, when we saw him in court... I was horrified very quickly by the so-called progressive DA when he fought tooth and nail to deny that Castile, that there was any conflict of interest because, in fact, Castile was insisting that he had almost no involvement with Mumia's case and that he should not be disqualified, in other words. And now Mumia, back then, in the 80s and later, at least twice, asked for Castile to recuse himself. I myself was involved 
in street actions and petitions demanding that he recuse himself. This is back in the 90s that I was doing that. And he refused and said that he was not biased at all and that he could be objective, et cetera, et cetera. Well, when they began looking at the records, uh, a couple of things happened. Something showed up that he had a particular interest as when he was a DA in making sure that people who had been convicted of killing a cop would be executed as quickly as possible. And he targeted them. There was a memo that showed that he had done that. So there was lots of debate, the usual BS that goes on in the courts. But the judge ruled that there, in fact, was prejudice. The judge is a black Leon Tucker, impressive bearing in court, and kind of impressive in some of his rulings. And ironically, the judge was more radical and more committed to justice than the DA, which is not surprising given the positions in the system, but he was not touted as a, he was a Republican, and he was providing more fairness in the case than Larry Krasner. So, as the case goes on, the judge rules that they had a right to appeal, and there was prejudice in the case, and so on and so on. A few days after he rules that, Krasner finds, now remember, Krasner was fighting tooth and nail and supporting the argument that Castile had not incorrectly not recused himself from the case. So Krasner shows up in court and reports to the judge that he has found numerous boxes, found them in a furniture storage room with labels saying this was the case, this was about Mumia. Well, these boxes then become subject to investigation. The judge gave the right to Mumia's lawyers to look at what was in there. Well, that turns out to have really changed things dramatically because there were many more boxes and they haven't all been examined. But just the four or five that were examined at that time dramatically changed the situation. Well, what's in those boxes that changes the situation so dramatically? So what happened, those boxes, first of all, they had been around since 1982. So how come they were just discovered in a furniture storage room? So that in itself is significant, that uh, these were withheld. You're not supposed to withhold that kind of information from the defense. And especially what was in these boxes, which turned out to be a letter from the key witness who claimed that he had seen Mumia kill Faulkner, being the officer who was killed, a key witness. And in the boxes is a letter from him and repeated requests from him that the prosecutor give him the money he promised to give him. <laughs> you know, and obviously there was some discussion going on about what he could do and would do in return for the money. I mean, that wasn't explicitly stated like that, but certainly the implication was there and it looked significant. And he also was the only one who he and one other witness, Schaubert being the person who was communicating this to the DA, only these two had actually claimed that they saw Mumia shoot the cop. So it turns out, number one, that this guy, Schaubert, had never been in pictures that were seen, photographs of the scene, his car, and he never show up there. So that was already questionable, and that came way back. But now is this idea that he's been bribed to testify against Mumia. So that's number one. Number two, 
1986, supposedly important victory, and so it was, you know, on paper, on the issue of race was ruled on by the Supreme Court. It's called the Batson ruling. And essentially, it said that potential jurors could not be excluded based on race alone. Well, you know, as significant as that was in Philadelphia, there was actually somebody in the DA's office who trained young lawyers how to keep black people off the jury, and especially young black men. It was okay to include older black women. But still, this rule is there, and they found in these boxes that there were lots of notes that have been taken by the DA on the racial composition of the jury and tremendous focus on race, which was, again, very, very suspicious. And then the third thing was that another witness who was in a case, a prostitute who had been convicted and was sentenced to very, very heavy penalties, the evidence in this box suggested that she had also been bribed and her case was watched very closely, her case on these other issues that she was convicted of and that she was on trial about. The case was being monitored, not only monitored by them, but they were speaking to the judge and to lawyers in the case and so on, clearly meddling in that case. So these three items, and then there's so much more, but these three were the ones that the lawyer, Mumia's lawyers picked. I mean, for example, the most famous one, is a quote by the original judge. He was also the judge in the review of the case, in the appeal. The famous Albert Saber, who was known to be an open, racist, um, lifelong member of the Fraternal Order of Police, all kinds of involvements with right-wing and very reactionary racist forces, he was overheard by a very credible witness to say in a courtroom, not in front of Mumia, not while Mumia's case was there, but in a courtroom speaking to another judge, I'm going to help them fry the, and he used the N-word. So that was appealed, of course, you know, and that's a big issue. So, you know, that was rejected by any appeals that was rejected. The argument was, well, maybe it's not a nice thing to have said, but it wasn't really evidence of bias and so on and so on. So there's a lot of other evidence like that. But here, three items were actually in our hands. And in September of this year, September 17th, somewhat shocking to a lot of us, after what he had shown up to now in court, Krasna has announced that he would not oppose getting this case reviewed again before a judge, that he was not going to fight that. So that was very surprising. Jumping ahead to yesterday, Maureen Faulkner, who's the widow, widow par excellence. I mean, she plays the role. She's been remarried for a long, long time. And she's very close to the Fraternal Order of Police, and who uses whom and what is hard to exactly assess, but they sure are in bed together, she and the Fraternal Order of Police. So lo and behold, Krasna has just announced that he will not appeal. He will not stop this appeal from happening. So Maureen Faulkner, about a month ago, I think, she had already filed... As a victim, she insisted that Krasna was completely biased toward Mumia and should be removed from the case. 
And she said things that were completely untrue. She listed people who were on his staff that had been leaders in the Mumia movement, which was completely not true. And she tried to make it look like this was completely apparent that there was a conflict of interest and he should be removed from the case. The judge ruled no. The judge rejected her. So here it is a month or so later, and she's filing again, basically on the same argument. But now she took it from Superior Court to Supreme Court. And she got a more well-known right-wing lawyer who has a certain amount of prestige in those circles and so on and so on. So she upped the level of struggle, but basically with the same argument. So that's the latest thing that's happened in the case, though we are waiting from Krasna to respond to all the arguments about the data that has come out and the information that has come out. And our lawyers have filed papers, and on December 2nd, he's supposed to respond. And December 7th, of course, we have our event in Philadelphia. So that's kind of the politics and the legal state of Mumia's case. And I think that they are very nervous that Krasner is weakening in his alliance with the FOP or his concessions and his fear of them. You know, he tried to really present himself as this very, very progressive DA, which is a a funny phrase anyway, because a DA has a hard time being progressive. And he was blasted. He was invited to a conference at Yale, radical lawyers, DAs or something like that. And he was supposed to speak and the students on their own initiative, I mean, we didn't even contact them about this. A group of students, law students, said, no way, you know, he's not speaking, given his lack of strong, you know, on the Mumia case, but also just that he's the DA. So I think that may have made Krasner nervous because, you know, he cares about his legacy. He has a history of being a progressive defender. He's defended a lot of clients. He's done some good things. He's gotten rid of cash bail that you have to pay for a lot of people. He's definitely an improvement over previous DAs. But like I say, when I was in courtroom and watched him fight tooth and nail for the fact that Castile did not need to recuse himself, I was wondering what progressive means. Well, the contents of the boxes, the quality of those court rulings should have Mumia's supporters in high spirits on December 7th. Tell us about the event. We decided to try to put Mumia's case and the whole issue of political prisoners and the the phenomenon of mass incarceration in the context of U.S. imperialism around the world. How does it fit in? And you're one of the speakers who's going to be addressing that. You and Mumia will be the main people to give an analysis of how these two intertwine and how what happens in this country is very much part of this strategy of U.S. imperialism around the world, the repression, the white supremacy, the attempt to destroy any progressive movement, mainly people of color, but just labor unions and so on and so on in this country, matches a lot of what the United States gets governments around the world to do when they're up. I look at just what happened in Bolivia, what's happening in Ecuador, what's happening in Algeria. There's just so many issues 
and phenomena in the practice of U.S. imperialism in these countries that you can understand and easily apply not exactly the same thing, but how the same goals are being sought, basically for U.S. imperialism to play a significant role and continue to have power and control over the world and its resources, they need a subservient, cooperative populace. And they need it around the world, and they need it in the United States. So I'm just going to say that much, because I'm sure there's a lot more that you're going to say, and I'm really looking forward to what you and Mumia will be saying on that day. Youth rise up against U.S. empire. So we are looking at youth in some of the demonstrations show a lot of young people, whether you look at Chile or Algeria, the crowds, you know, they have older people, but a lot of young people who are active. And we're going to be having representatives from some of these countries speak. There'll be breakout groups. There'll be a plenary where we'll have a legal update. We're hoping that the lawyer will come and give a legal update because by then we'll have known what Krasna has filed on December 2nd. And also, it is not by chance that a Mumia movement is focusing on U.S. imperialism. Mumia as you know, has written a trilogy on U.S. imperialism. It's called Murder Incorporated, and it's in three parts. Yes, the third one's coming out in March. You know, for people who've read Howard Zinn, there's some similarities, and obviously the truth is the truth to a large extent, so they overlap significantly. But the tone of these is such a fighting tone. It's such a fighting tone. So, where should everybody be trying to go on December 7th in Philadelphia? We're going to be at a charter school. Apparently, it's a progressive one. <laughs> Mastery Charter School, Shoemaker Campus. The address is 5301 Media Street, M-E-D-I-A, Media Street. And there will be transportation coming from New York. If you're coming from New York City, call 212 330 8029-212-330-8029. There will be collective travel, and there'll be food, music. It'll be an interesting day. There are wonderful people in the movement. It's multi-generational, definitely multi-ethnic, and I invite everybody to come, and I'll be very happy to meet you all. That was Suzanne Ross of International Concern Family and Friends, of Mumia Abu-Jamal. Benjamin Young is an interesting young scholar. He's a professor in cyber leadership and intelligence at Dakota State University and was awarded a doctoral degree from the U.S. Naval War College. Considering his background, Young has unconventional interests. His doctoral studies centered on North Korea, and he recently wrote an essay for Seoul, the critical journal of black politics, culture, and society. The essay was titled, Imagining Revolutionary Feminism, Communist Asia, and the Women of the Black Panther Party. My article really focuses on, like, three case studies, that is China, Vietnam, and North Korea. And those are the three communist Asian countries that Black Panther Party women really look to as models of kind of rugged feminism. And each of them kind of represented different models of feminism to Black Panther Party women. In China, they saw 
communist theory, the advanced status of women. Uh, Mao talked about how he wanted to elevate the status of women, that they were going to hold up half the sky. And in Vietnam, they were confronting U.S. imperialism in their daily lives. So this image of a Vietnamese mother with a Kalashnikov and a baby on one hand, there's Kalashnikov on the back. And then on the other hand, they also have their revolutionary duty as mothers. And then in North Korea, which is actually what I got my PhD in and what is really my focus is in North Korea, the Cleavers, Kathleen Cleaver and Eldridge Cleaver, they found an ideology in North Korea called Juche, which really means radical self-reliance. And Kathleen Cleaver really took from this to mean that the Black Panther Party was advancing this theory of self-defense and Juche really was something that really correlated with their own theory. And they were able to give basically a name to what they've been advancing for a while within the party. So that's that's basically how I framed my article. Yes, and you seem to be saying that these Panther women were using the examples of Vietnamese, Korean, and Chinese communist women in order to change the relationship that they had as women within the Panther Party itself. Yeah, they really imagined them as basically being equals. And within the party itself, there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of patriarchy, a lot of oppression against women. So they also used this to basically change the culture within the Black Panther Party. And so on one hand, like the social revolutions in Communist Asia really in practice didn't advance the status of women. But then the Black Panther Party women, basically, they used the theory that was being advanced in communist Asia as a way to basically kind of change the culture around womanhood within the party. And so that's why I named my article Imagining Revolutionary Feminism. So that's kind of how I wrapped around it. And I I really also use secondary sources from really uh, prominent Black Panther Party scholars, such as Robin Farmer. And I also use quite a bit of recent works by scholars focusing on the Black Panther Party. Because within academia, there's actually been more of a um, increased effort to look at the best Black Panther Party's international networks. And that's something that I find really interesting. And these three Asian parties were very useful to the Panther Party because they weren't white. And the Soviet Party, being white, was less useful in the Panthers' organizing. Yeah, there was a really funny story. There was a Black Panther Party woman, I can't recount the name now, and but she was, there was actually like a party of anti-imperialists, and there was the Soviets, and then there was Vietnamese women, and it was these big, buff, Soviet-looking men, and the Black Panther Party woman basically said, you know, look at these men, they don't really do anything, but look at the Vietnamese women, they are out there fighting for the struggle. And so there's basically a contrast between the Soviets as basically just being a new form of imperialism that basically it was like a white European uh, colonialism, just with a different name and a different facade, but really who was advancing the global revolution was communist Asia. And at the front lines of it were the North Koreans, the Chinese and the Vietnamese. And they all represented kind of different visions of socialist modernity. Well, some of us noted at the time, and at the time I was in the party, that the party was so friendly towards or enamored of the Koreans because the Koreans were more welcoming to the Panther Party than the Chinese had been. Yeah, so North Korea is really fascinating because on one hand, nowadays, it's like a deeply nationalistic 
country and it really is very paranoid of foreigners. But during the late 1960s, North Korea is a bit different. It was quite internationalist and actually welcomed the Black Panther Party. For example, Kathleen Cleaver gave birth to her daughter in a Pyongyang maternity hospital. And it was even reported in one book that Kim Il-sung was actually named the godfather of this child. I'm not sure how true that is, but basically the North Koreans, they wanted to forge international networks with non-state actors around the world. So they forged like kind of international ties with the Puerto Rican Independence Party. They forged ties with the Black Panther Party, the Irish Republican movement. So it was basically North Korea wanted to be the vanguard of world revolution. Yeah, they were a small country, only about 24 million, but they saw themselves as basically occupying a niche because they were a small country that can never colonize another country. So China's huge. It could theoretically colonize another country, which is what, in my opinion, the People's Republic of China is doing right now in Xinjiang and in Tibet. It is China's basically become a colonialist country. But North Korea can never do that. And I think a lot of these radical actors around the world noticed that. And they said, okay, this is a genuine anti-imperialist figure on the world stage. And that's what I think was alluring, particularly to the Black Panther Party. Well, for the historical record, in 1970, China, as we now know, was already getting feelers from the United States about recognizing Red China, as they used to call it, as the China. And that may have had something to do with the way the Chinese treated the overtures from the U.S. Black Panther Party. Yeah, there was one of the reasons why China was beginning to kind of fade within the consciousness of radical actors within the United States is that basically the Nixon's meeting with Mao was really disenchanted a lot of radicals around the world because China for a long period of time was going to be like the bastion of world revolution. I remember I was reading archival documents from Eldridge Cleaver's papers, and he was just really disenchanted with China's move to basically what he called kind of like a retreat from its revolutionary vanguardism. And so a lot of times China was very pragmatic during Mao's later years. I think that the opening with the United States is really a direct result of the Sino-Soviet split and the fact that that got quite hostile during the 1960s and that the U.S. government was quite good at basically playing both sides of that conflict and really exploiting that split. And so basically, it's my opinion that actually North Korea took over the role of China as really being the leading figure within the world revolutionary movement in the 1970s, 1980s. And I'm actually just finishing a book about North Korea's relations with the third world. So I'll definitely have more to say in the future about this. You write that the Panther women's lenses towards communist Asia were not rose-colored, but rather red-colored. What do you mean? Yeah. So the Black Panther Party, I think there's just so many misconceptions about the party in the United States. So, you know, whether it's like, you know, you turn on Fox News, which is, which is in my opinion, just horrible. And, you know, they, they portray the Black Panther Party as being basically terrorists and they were just horrible figures. And that's not true. But then sometimes when you go to the far left, they represent the Black Panther Party as being basically this idealist party that was like no internal faction. And they were really just trying to fight for black freedom. And that is also to some degree not true as well as that in, you know, the Black Panther Party is full of internal conflict. But at the core of the ideology of the Black Panthers, they were Marxist-Leninists. If you read the Black Panther Party newspaper, they really believed in communism. They believed that was, that was the way to basically overturn the status quo within the United States and basically really try to improve the rights of African-Americans 
and oppressed peoples within the United States. So that's why I say they were red colors, that they saw communist Asia as allies because they were Marxist-Leninists, and, so and they were non-white Marxist-Leninists. And so there was this kind of international solidarity that was forged between the two sides that I think was genuine. It was really forged over this ideological bond. And Panther women saw Korean women, and especially Vietnamese women, because they were engaged in direct combat with the United States, as role models and as examples, and as examples that could be used to change the way the Panther Party operated. Yeah, there was a lot of issues within the Black Panther Party when it came to the treatment of women. There's been allegations of abuse, of mistreatment. And so this fact that Vietnamese women were really leading the fight against U.S. imperialism in Southeast Asia was something that the Black Panther Party women, they strategically used as a device to combat oppression within the Black Panther Party. And so I think that's one of the key things that I really try to get across in my article is that the Black Panther Party women, they knew that there were issues within Asian communist societies when it came to the surveillance state, when it came to the police state there, when it came to just general suppression. Like they weren't useful idiots, so to speak, but they basically used key elements of communist Asian theory to basically in turn try to change the political culture within the Black Panther Party. And they saw that using Communist Asia, imagining them as revolutionary feminist models, was a way to basically combat the patriarchy within the party. But in the early 1970s, I'm sure as you know, the Black Panther Party was starting to be dismantled between internal issues, but also Kuntel Pro and basically the FBI becoming very intertwined with them party and destroying it from within. But were these Panther women actually idealizing these Asian communist women and these Asian communist parties? Yeah, I, I mean, I think there is a degree to which they basically held them up. They idealized their roles within society. I mean, take, for instance, North Korea. I don't believe there's ever been a, a woman member in the North Korean Politburo. The leading woman figure within the North Korean leadership is almost always related to the Kim family, the leaders of North Korea. And so it's not like North Korea is some beacon of feminism. And the same can be said for China is that Mao's wife was very important, but it's only because she was Mao's wife. And so if you actually want to look at like genuine feminism, like who was really helping to advance the revolution, it was, it was Vietnam. There were women were really a part of the, the struggle there to combat the U.S. presence on the ground, whether it was helping to transfer supplies in the Ho Chi Minh Trail or whether it was actually fighting on the battleground. Vietnamese women were probably the most real in terms of their commitment to change within the country. I think the Black Panther Party women realized this, but you couldn't ignore China's advancing role within the world and also the fact that North Korea had an ideology of Juche that basically was very interrelated with what the Black Panther's own messaging of self-defense. And how important is the experience and are the writings of Black Panther women to the legacy of modern Black feminism? Oh, I think it's critically important. I think that when you look at the writing of Black Panther Party women, whether it's Asada Shakur or Kathleen Cleaver, I think it really presents a different angle than the writings of Black Panthers such as Huey Newton or Aldrich Cleaver. 
I think they really tend to get at some of the, the issues within the party. They tend to also get at some of the mistreatment of women. And I think that they are very critical to the legacies of radical black feminism during the late 1960s. And there's been more and more work being done on Black Panther Party women, which I think is good for the academic field of African-American history. There's always been a, a movement, I think, within the African-American freedom struggle to really see themselves as part of an international network. So whether it's the current Black Lives Matter movement, seeing themselves as basically part of an international movement of solidarity with Palestinian struggle, liberation struggle, whether it's Puerto Rican independence, there's always been kind of African-American radicals have always basically seen themselves as part of an international network. And I think that's really critically important. And I think that's something that tends to be missed when the mainstream media talks about the Black Panther Party. That was Professor Benjamin Young speaking from Dakota State University. Hispanics surpass Blacks as the largest minority in the United States in the 21st century. But minority status doesn't necessarily mean that anti-Blackness is not a problem among Hispanics. We spoke with John Viev Williams Cumry, a longtime activist who says racial justice and women's reproductive rights are closely related. Absolutely. The reality is that these conversations are not usually held in regards to, let's talk about women, let's talk about gender within Blackness as well. And then when you add ethnicity to that in regards to, let's talk about Latina women in regards to Blackness, these conversations are just very, very rare. So I'm, I'm glad that this is happening. I'm glad that we're having this conversation. And I'm glad that it's also not women-identified people that are doing it right now in this case. So when we talk about reproductive justice, first of all, it's really important for me to acknowledge that the term was coined by a group of Black women that were really committed around reproductive justice. And that group included Loretta Ross, who a lot of people know. I also included Luz Marina Rodriguez, who a lot of people know as well. And it was basically around a conversation around population and development that was held in Cairo, in Egypt. And it was really around, like, how do we really center these things as it relates specifically to women of color and within that, Black women? Because the issues that Black women were facing have been facing historically and, and continue to face are different in regards to reproductive health, which is a term that is mostly and widely used. It's a different context altogether. So reproductive justice really encompasses, you know, there are different principles among them, the right to choose to have or not to have children. And a lot of people just brush that off as abortion, right? But it's beyond abortion. It's around choosing to procreate or choosing not to, and the thought process that goes into that, but then also choosing how we parent. So the fact that as Black people, we have social determinants of health, for example, most women that choose to give birth that are Black have emergency C-sections. We already know in the United States, Black women are dying at really high numbers, and there's data around that during childbirth. Last week, I went to a funeral of the daughter of a friend of mine that six days after giving birth to a healthy baby, she died, and we had to bury a 30-year-old. 
So these are things that are not really being articulated or really spoken of when we talk about reproductive health in general. But reproductive justice brings in the plight that women of color, black women, are really facing within reproduction. Your colleague, Diana Lugo-Martinez, has written that calling out anti-blackness in the Latinx community means acknowledging that Latinx folks can be anti-black and that they can perpetuate anti-black racism. Well, that's something that most black folks know, but is there resistance to the very idea of anti-black racism, anti-blackness in the Latinx community? Well, I could easily answer that as, you know, does the zebra have stripes kind of thing. And the reality is that the same colonial mentality, the same racist mentality, the same capitalist mentality that exists within the United States exists throughout the world. And Latin America is no different. So I always, when people ask me this all the time, right, it's not a new question for me. When people ask me this, I always say, you know, you should really take a look at the president, you know, something as simple as the president throughout Latin America. And then who do we see? Because in most of the country, with some few exceptions, and those few exceptions are considered ultra-left, ultra-radical government, with a few exceptions, all the presidents throughout Latin America are white. And not white in regards to, like, mixed-race white. Like, white appearing with Light brown eyes, green eyes, blue eyes, blonde hair, you know, brown hair, straight. So it replicates the same structures that exist here. And just because Latin America has been a region where the racial dynamics have been different in regards to like things that such as mestizaje, for example, and quote unquote, bettering the race, which is what it's known for, the same racial structures exist. And when people migrate here, then sometimes there's a little bit of amnesia that happens with that, right? So when people that are appearing as, you know, in the dominant culture in countries back home, back home for me is Panama, and then they migrate here and suddenly they have become people of color just because they're from Latin America, it doesn't mean that that sentiment of disliking Black people, of calling us names, of making sure that we're put down at every single opportunity, of not caring that we're highly incarcerated, not caring that we are being brutalized by the police in our home countries, not caring all those things. And suddenly here it's like, oh, I don't really have to pay attention to back there, but now I exist here. And it's a way for me to be considered a person of color, benefit from that, but still practice my anti-Blackness and not having to really deal with that. So then there's a distancing between who they are fundamentally in regards to accessing privileges here in the United States and then who they don't want to be, which is this person that still doesn't associate with Black people, still doesn't look at things by race, even though it's very racialized, and still chooses to distance themselves from Blackness. And that is practicing anti-Blackness. Yes, certainly the same power structure exists in Latin America as in the United States. The difference, however, is that it's not acknowledged that it is common throughout most of the classes to deny that this racial hierarchy exists. Absolutely. I've been 
saying this for many years. And finally, probably like 12, 13 years later, we're having these conversations now. If you look at leadership within the quote unquote immigrant rights movement, most of those leaderships do not represent the racial dynamics or the racial differences throughout Latin America. We see predominantly white Latinos in positions of power. And because that's more palatable, that's easier to deal with than have to really deal with a Black Latina person or an Indigenous Latina person or an Asian Latina person, right? It's more palatable to deal with a white Latina and say that you have somebody that's of color, but they're really not of color. They're just ethnically, they're from Latin America and they speak Spanish. And I feel honestly that this is across the board. So this is in left circles as well and to the right. So I feel like when people take a stance to really uphold racial justice, then and only then are they really examining what their own prejudices have been and practices have been in regards to the Latino community where they have isolated and marginalized Black people from that. A concrete example of how this translates to systemic and structure, to systems and structures, is when we talk about immigration and immigrant rights, Haiti never enters into the conversation. Garifuna people never entered into the conversation. Garifuna people that were displaced because of Hurricane Mitch. These people never entered into the conversation. Why? Because they're really not considered part of the quote-unquote immigrant rights movement. They're considered, oh, they're Haitians, even though they share an island with Dominican Republic, or they're special people, they're Garifunas, but they're completely invisibilized. So when you have people like Diana, people like myself, that then center these communities, then we're seen as divisive because now we're bringing in race when supposedly there is no race to be examined because we're all from Latin America. Yes, of course, many Latin Americans brought that racial divisiveness in with them. We think specifically of many Miami Cubans who were white in Cuba and thought of themselves as white in Cuba, and many left because of white supremacist reasons. So, of course, they would behave as racists when they hit Miami. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, and the examples of that are many, you know, and sadly, anti-blackness is a social tool that has been used to really pit people against each other throughout the region and in the United States as well. The communication system has done a really good, it's a machinery, right? It's a a propaganda machinery that has done a good job of misinforming and unconsciously and consciously educating our people to turn against themselves and to turn against Black people. So you see a lot of ad campaigns, you see commercials, you see jobs and all that kind of stuff that don't want Black people to even exist. So you see telephone commercials where a monkey is marrying like another person and as soon as they get like that cell phone brand and they turn into a woman but it's a black woman or you have like the mammy concept still in many ads and novellas and all that kind of stuff and what that has done is that as people start getting access to these things and I'm talking about black people I'm also speaking about indigenous people I'm talking about any people in the region once they get access to these things, the message is clear that the worst thing to be is Black. So then imagine migrating to a country like the United States, and then you see and you live through assaults. You live through assaults on Black people specifically, police brutality. You hear about the war and drug, even though you don't 
really understand it. And you really think that it's justified to have these things against Black people because you have been taught all along your entire life that the worst thing to be is Black people and that we are undeserving of so many things. That's how anti-Blackness shows up within the Latino community. Yes, and it shows up among members of the Latino community who by any measure are Black themselves. Exactly. And then you have the other side of it, where people that are now becoming aware of their racial diversity within themselves are claiming Blackness, but claiming it in a way that is inauthentic, I would say. Claiming it in a way that benefits them because it's something popular to be Black and Latino, but not really claiming it in regard to let's uphold the people that are undeniably Black, people that have a Black experience in their lived bodies that are actually being targeted as Black. And let's really uphold those stories from a position of we're all Black, but our lived experiences are different. So let me make sure that my brothers and sisters that have been living in their skin and in their body their whole life are acknowledged for that and not me with the privilege that it comes with being a light-skinned person and the hair and all those dynamics that come into it, let me not just take on blackness as something that's popular right now. I can run with it for a few years, but when it comes time for me to like moving up in class or moving up in jobs and all that kind of stuff, it's something I can also drop. So there's that conversation that has to happen too. Well, in fact, there's lots of upwardly mobile and ambitious young black people who also take on a political blackness for a couple of years and then move on. Exactly. In terms of the latest upsurge in political activity that's gone under the heading of the Black Lives Matter movement, were you satisfied or pleased with the level of Latin American involvement in this movement? Well, I can't can't really... You know, I can't really speak directly to that, but I can speak about the ripple effects that that had throughout Latin America. One thing to know about Black culture, African-American culture here within the United States is that it is something that groups outside of the region, even though a lot of the groups outside of the United States throughout Latin America and the Caribbean, even though they're pretty well organized themselves, they look towards African-American Black liberation movements and struggles as models that they can learn from. And when Las Vidas Negras Importan came out, it really provided them with a platform where they could improve in their own organizing. So, you know, I can speak about those kind of the models and, and the ripple effect that that had in the region. But I can't speak about the inclusion or the not inclusion within a platform here, just because Afro-Latinos that, like myself, that have been doing this work for a long time, those of us that have been engaged in this, I engage as a Pan-African. I don't necessarily engage as somebody just from Latin America. I engage as a Pan-African that has lived in Latin America, that is from Latin America, and that speaks multiple languages and has all these different experiences. But at the end of the day, I'm a Pan-African person. So my engagement in a lot of the political scenes in the United States, not necessarily Black Lives Matter, has been as a Pan-African. And are you noting a more Pan-African sentiment with Latinos beyond this border? 
You know, yes. Just the fact that in Latin America, the term Afrodescendiente, which is African descendant, is the common the common term that is used, is to signify that we understand that we're not from one country. We understand that regionally, you know, in Latin America, we have had similar experiences regardless of the countries that we're from. Now, it has become divisive in regards to African-Americans and African descendants and, and the term African descendant where there's an assertion, the quote-unquote Americanness in this country by saying African-American. And I understand also the political components to that. But in regards to building those bridges to join as regionally as African descendants, that has been hard with, with some of the brothers and sisters from the United States that don't embrace that concept of it doesn't matter what country you're from, but you're African descendant. So in the context of Latin America, you know, we can navigate from Venezuela to Brazil to Colombia to Cuba, and we're Afro-Ascendientes, which means that we understand that we have a very similar lived experience, and be it politically, economically, socially, culturally, that just automatically unites us. And we understand that the history is a little bit different from over here. But I would say outside of the borders, the concept of Pan-Africanism, it's more central than I feel like in the United States. The United States has been hostile to the government of Bolivia ever since Evo Morales was elected as that country's first Amerindian president. This month, right-wing forces and the military staged a coup against President Morales, forcing him into exile in Mexico. A white woman politician from a minority party declared herself president. Almost immediately, the Trump administration recognized the coup government, which is no surprise to Alex Maine of the Center for Economic and Policy Research in Washington. The relations between the two countries, between the two governments, I should say, have been very bad for quite a long time. And this stemmed from the U.S. through its diplomats and particularly through its ambassador that was in Bolivia at the time in 2008, supporting violent protests again. This took place in August, September of 2008, when you had the ambassador who met with some of the hardline protest leaders that were encouraging protests that were also very racist and going after indigenous peoples and mass leaders and so on. This led to a break in diplomatic relations. The U.S. ambassador was kicked out of Bolivia, and of course the U.S. reciprocated. They haven't had ambassador-level relations since then. And of course, in terms of its own domestic and foreign policies, Bolivia has really gone in a different direction from that that the U.S. government has wanted to see. And they did away with U.S. assistance to not be reliant on that. So USAID ended up leaving the country at the request of the Evo Morales government. And then, of course, Evo Morales was close to Hugo Chavez of Venezuela and other left-wing leaders in the region. And so I think whether under the George W. Bush administration or the Obama administration, the U.S. government really saw the Bolivian government of Evo Morales as an adversary in the region and sought to undermine Evo Morales. Probably not as actively as uh, the government in Venezuela, but still, I think, fairly actively, certainly in multilateral settings. 
But what's happened with these last elections is that you've had the Organization of American States that's there observing. They've observed elections in Bolivia before. There were no real issues. But I think there was a sense of an opportunity now with these elections and the fact that there was some controversy around the elections due to the fact that Evo Morales was standing for another term and the Constitution allowed him two terms. He was standing for a third term under this Constitution. Of course, that had been authorized and was legal because of a court decision. But ultimately, you had a sector of the population that was riled up about that. And that was part of what was behind the protest movement. So you already had a context of some social tension that was there that the U.S. took advantage of, and they did that in large part through the Organization of American States. And you saw a great deal of coordination between the Organization of American States electoral mission and its statements and the statements of the Secretary General of the Organization of American States, Luis Almagro, and the statements and positions coming from uh, the State Department and the White House throughout this whole episode, which shifted from there needs to be a runoff election to there needs to be completely new elections to supporting the forced resignation um, under military pressure of Evo Morales to supporting a coup. So you had both the U.S. and the Organization of American States that were very much in line. And, of course, the U.S. has an enormous influence within the Organization of American States and provides something like 60% of its funding, not to mention that the Organization of American States is located in the middle of Washington, D.C., just next to the U.S. State Department. Well, and that brings us up to now where we have indigenous protests, protests by indigenous people against the coup in Bolivia, and also, as you noted, attacks on MAS representatives and serious unrest. And we have also Janine Agnes, who was a lower-level official, now saying, I'm the president now. And the Associated Press has a headline saying, Bolivia's declared interim president faces challenges, not noting that declared by herself, you know. And we're hearing from the State Department, which just got through supporting the coup, has a statement, at least from one official, saying, we look forward to working with Janine Añez. Is that legal? Now we have someone stepping forward. It sounds a lot like Venezuela. Someone saying, oh, you know what? Call me president now. No, it's absolutely not legal. So you could consider that as sort of the second part of the coup, the first part being the forced resignation under military pressure of the president and vice president, and also other officials that were in the constitutional succession to be president. They were all under threat. They were being threatened personally or their families were being threatened. And then they either left the country or went into hiding. But at any rate, that was a military coup right there. And then when you had Janine Añez, who stepped up in the Senate and declared herself president, that was also a coup. You had, of course, in the constitutional line of succession, the president of the Senate that would have eventually become president. However, she, Jenny Nanez, was not the president of the Senate. She belonged to the minority opposition party in the Senate. And she took advantage of the fact that the legislators of both houses, but including the Senate, were not there, were in hiding, weren't able to assist in the discussion. So there was no quorum. So she spoke before a plenary that wasn't a quorum. It was, there, it was not legal. You didn't have enough members of the Senate that were present. 
and declared herself president of the Senate before then saying, okay, if I'm president of the Senate, then that makes me president of the country. And, you know, I think what really made it clear what this was all about was when you had the military high command, one of the officers from the military high command, who was the one who put the presidential sash around the body of Janine Agnes in place, of course, of the outgoing president. Those are the sorts of things that the media has not described in what's happened. The very unconstitutional nature of this presidential succession. Most of the articles that we're seeing now coming from most of the media are just describing uh, Janine Agnes as the interim president, period, and not even mentioning the fact that, you know, there might be some debate as to her legitimacy as an interim president. And that's it for this edition of Black Agenda Radio. Be sure to visit us at blackagendareport.com where you will find a new and provocative issue each Wednesday. That's www.blackagendareport.com. It's the place for news, commentary, and analysis from the black left. I'm Nellie Bailey, along with my co-host, Glenn Ford. Our thanks to the good people at the Progressive Radio Network. <laughs>